All right, we're back with a special edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, when I say special edition, I mean we are reacting live here as we tape Federalist Radio Hour to the news that Kyle Rittenhouse has been found not guilty on all counts after days of jury deliberations. Uh, the length of the jury de- deliberations actually surprised some people. I expect will be joined uh, by other colleagues as the hour wears on. But right now, I'm with my colleague, Eddie Scary, who has been following this trial closely. He was on the podcast talking about it earlier this week. Um, Eddie, your immediate reaction was to actually just sort of look back on a story that, that you wrote. And I think the story did put it really well, that this trial was a case study in the way the media has false narratives about race. Uh, tell us what you meant by that. Right, yeah. So obviously, this trial has very national implications, political implications, um, but in particular as it relates to race, right? And that is because this was portrayed by the national media, by by that I mean CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, all the big ones, um, portrayed as a, a, a racial matter, even though everyone involved in this case was white. And I, I have spoken to so many people, I bet you have, and I bet many of the people watching this even had experiences where they either found out themselves or talked to somebody who who was under the impression that this was somehow a racial, this was a racial issue because it had been repeated so many times by people in the media, liberals in the media, that this was um, white supremacy, that Kyle Rittenhouse was at a Black Lives Matter protest. He was patrolling a Black Lives Matter protest when all of that 100% is not true. He was actually in Kenosha well after protests had ended. It, it, was, it was when the rioting started. The rioting kind of was born out of the BLM protesting. Um, but he was there. All three men that he shot, two of which died, um, all three of them are white. So you have nothing but a trial about white people. And yet, just to give two examples, um, the New York Times, I guess it was yesterday, or yeah, yesterday that said, uh, one of their columnists said, um, identified Kyle Rittenhouse as a white teenager who had killed or who had shot three men at a Black Lives Matter protest. Obviously, the implication there is that race matters if you're going to name the race of the of the defendant. Um, Joy Reid had made a had made a comment at the start of the trial. Joy Reid on MSNBC made a comment at the start of, start of the trial about how this uh, the jury could end up looking approximate to uh, the Emmett Till jury. Um, mm. So just all these racial um references uh, on a on a case that had nothing to do with race um so just that that was the point i was making my piece is that the media liberals the left in general had made this such a racial issue political at large but racial even though it had nothing to do with that yeah, and it's going to continue to be that way. I think we've already seen it. I actually heard Chuck Todd, and we can get into the media reaction here a little bit, because Eddie, that really is your specialty. And I do think the news value of this case, the, the reason that this is blasted all over national news, and the reason then that we have to talk about it um, on the right is because the media has been egregious. I mean, that's to me the central news value of this, is that the media fanned the flames of riots um, to the point where the governor of Wisconsin was too intimidated to do anything about it in time. And none of this had to happen. Absolutely none of this had to happen. And yet Chuck Todd said on MSNBC as everyone was sort of digesting the verdict, um, 
he said, you know, it's interesting how some people are going to see this through the prism of race and some people are going to at least claim they see it through the prism of the Second Amendment. And you see right there crystallized everything that's wrong with the media and that while Chuck Todd is trying to give both sides, as he claims to do, he's denigrating one as racist implicitly. Um, and it just was, to me, the perfect example of how the media has, has caused so much unrest in the country is because they can't fundamentally see one side as decent. Really, and that's right. And also just the the, uh, the attorney for um, Kyle Rittenhouse was just giving a statement. Yes. Um, a public statement, right? And where he said, he said, I don't really understand why it got so much media attention. He said, I'll never understand that. Um, and God bless him for being such an innocent <laughs> person. Um, because the reason why there is so much media investment in this really is because one, they need the, uh, they, they like to fan the flames of racism, just as you were talking about the rights of, they need to keep this white supremacy narrative alive. But two, and I think first and foremost is this, um, this constant need to justify one type of political violence that happened. And that was throughout 2020, we saw the the unrest throughout the summer, it's even continued into this year in, in, in some major cities. Um, but just to to really justify the fact that there is certain there is a certain type of political violence, destruction, vandalism, arson, rioting that is okay, and there is a kind that isn't okay. And one obviously through 2020 was used to um, to tip the election. I don't think there's there should not be any dispute about that. That should be on its face obvious. And that political violence and, and unrest and destruction and rioting that came from the left. The media bought into that. They not only bought into it, they, they encouraged it, excused it. Um, and they still, to this day, need to insist that that was okay. That that type of violence, that's, there, there is a certain type, when it's from the left, of unrest, rioting, violence that's okay. Yeah, and, that, and that's an important point. I'm actually going to play, you just brought up, um, as, as we started recording this, the Kyle Rittenhouse's defense attorney um, was giving a press conference, and I think a, a fairly candid press conference, actually, where this is not somebody, I think, who's been in national media a lot. In fact, he said this is the first case he could remember where the president of the United States would be weighing in, uh, the first case that he's litigated, where that would happen. And, and here's actually something he said. Uh, in, in on that subject. Yeah, and I said, I've never had a case, and I don't think I ever will, where within two days or three days of one another, you know, the president and the presidential candidate comment on it. And both of them had such different beliefs. Um, president Biden said some things that I think are so incorrect and untrue. He's not a white supremacist. I'm glad that he at least respects the jury verdict. And if the government had any information regarding his cell phone or anything that he'd been to any of those websites or been online doing that kind of stuff, it would have been introduced in evidence. It wasn't. We were the individuals who released his cell phone, which couldn't be cracked by the FBI because we had nothing to hide. So we're joined now also by our colleague, Ben Dominich, who's publisher of The Federalist, of course. And we, Ben, just played the clip of Kyle Rittenhouse's defense attorney's uh, public statement where he talked about Joe Biden um, referring to Kyle Rittenhouse as a white supremacist. Do you expect we will see any response uh, from the president that's conciliatory at all? I don't think we will. And I saw his statement um, that uh, was given, obviously, uh, coming back from Walter Reed. Um, 
And it didn't seem conciliatory in any way, except to say, you know, that he hadn't watched the trial and that he was, uh, you know, conceding that you have to stand by a jury verdict. The real thing that I took away from today was there is a host of people, I think, who uh, who owe Kyle Rittenhouse an apology. And I think the likelihood that he gets even close to a percentage of that uh, is very, very low. Instead, I think what you're likely to see is some equivalent of what we've seen in the so the so uh, apologies related to the Russia collusion charge, mm. in the sense that like, oh well, maybe the dossier was false, but the underlying story was true, or that there was enough evidence for a reasonable person to believe it, and of course especially when it comes to the Rittenhouse case, that's not true. And it's not true because we have the evidence uh, from all of the local videos that were taken, which obviously, you know, debunked so many of the, of the things that were being claimed right off the bat. And uh, again, we should appreciate in this moment the on-the-ground journalists who stayed there, unlike, by the way, the representatives of the New York Times who left because they thought bad things were going to happen. Um, the people who stayed there are the reason, I think, that Kyle Rittenhouse is free today. And it's mm. uh, it's really an astounding state of affairs because there's no willingness, I think, on the part of our media establishment to in any way question their pre-established narratives. And by the way, I, I have to apologize because I'm doing this out on my porch because my wife is still on some kind of feed on the inside. So <laughs> I was hoping that was going to end and it didn't. So that's why I'm late and that's why I'm outside. <laughs> but um, but let me your, just... your voice sounds great, whether you're inside or outside. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let me just say one more thing. I, so I always, I was always on the side of the idea that this guy had a strong case for self-defense, a strong case, uh, you know, against the charges that were brought against him. But can we pause to appreciate how badly the the prosecution was just grasping at straws in every area of this case in ways that were just, I mean, at, at points they were disturbing to watch. They made me feel uncomfortable. You ever watch one of those, uh, you know, it's a classic sitcom, you know, situation where someone's doing something so stupid that it makes you feel uncomfortable and you have yes. to look away? Yes. I had like a dozen moments like that with the prosecution uh today and uh, uh, over the past several weeks and it was uh and it was one of the things that i think was so it was so bad to watch in terms of trusting the justice system and it really i mean it got to me in the sense that i felt like we could easily have been talking about a situation today where jury intimidation and a prosecution that went haywire had resulted in something that was far less clear cut. And so I'm just frankly grateful that it turned out uh, to be as clear cut as it was. Uh, I see Kylie's joined us now, so I definitely want to get uh, to hear from her about her own reactions. The way you use the internet has changed dramatically over the last decade, as we cover here all of the time. But security tools are one of those things that's mostly stayed the same. Aura provides complete digital security to help protect your online accounts, finances, and devices, and more, all in one easy-to-use app. 
Aura provides digital security protection to keep your online finances, personal information, and tech safe from online threats. It's all-in-one protection from identity theft, financial fraud, malware, scam sites, and so much more. With Aura, you'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast. Like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked, or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name. Aura is easy to set up. All plans come with a million dollars in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds and experienced U.S.-based customer support that's got your back. Aura is a new type of security service that protects all of your information and devices with one simple subscription. How nice is that? With an easy online dashboard and alerts sent straight to your phone, Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues. So for a limited time, Aura is offering our listeners up to 40% off plans when you visit Aura.com slash Federalist. Go to Aura.com slash Federalist to get complete protection and savings of up to 40%. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash Federalist. Yeah, Kylie, I, I was going to say it did feel like watching mock trial um, at some points. It was so sort of contrived and, and theatrical. Did you get a similar impression to Ben that the prosecution was grasping at straws? You're actually in Wisconsin. Um, so I'm going to throw a two part question to you. I'm going to play this video from Julio Rosas. <laughs> So what you're seeing there is a crowd that was gathered outside the Kenosha courthouse shortly after the verdict uh, was delivered and a big gathering of people cheering uh, this as a victory for the Second Amendment. So, Kylie, on the one hand, did you did you react similarly to Ben with the prosecution? And then second, what do you expect to see in Wisconsin tonight? You actually toured Kenosha after the damage uh, initially in 2020. Yeah, so sorry, I missed part of Ben's uh, explanation there. But from what I caught, I completely agree with Ben. Um, I found a lot of the prosecutor's points, mock trial is a good way to put it, but uh, it kind of evoked almost a cringy sort of response um, where you're listening to the defense's fairly clear cut arguments and then it flashes to the prosecution just making very thin straw man arguments about um, ammunition that just seem irrelevant and saying things that are just blatantly contradicted by the video evidence. I mean, um, it grasped, they were clearly grasping at straws. Um, I don't know exactly what we'll see in Kenosha tonight. It's interesting to look at that video and see the um, response of people, you know, taking this as a victory. Um, I I do think it's interesting, and I, I actually am working on a piece about this, um, that one of the prosecution and the media's main talking points throughout this entire trial was that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse shouldn't have been there. He didn't belong there. He crossed state lines. You heard that over and over. Uh, and it's interesting that the people who got the final word in this trial were ultimately the jury. It was it was a, a group of people who are from Kenosha. They do belong there. They represent the interests of that community better than anybody else. Um, and they brought back a not guilty verdict. And so I'm hoping that uh, we see a fairly calm response and that um, the, the outcome and the overall um, posture of the people of Kenosha is one of justice is served and not one of we need to take up arms again and uh, you know let let these people know how we feel by by torching more businesses.
We continue to see in coverage, I mean, we continue to see terrible coverage, including uh, publications that list Kyle Rittenhouse as a white man, but not the race of his victims, which is one of those things we've heard from so many people on the left. They didn't realize that his victims were white because of the egregious media coverage for this. So uh, I'm going to go first to Eddie and then to Ben. What were the most egregious, uh, what, what did the media get the most wrong in this case? Or what, what were you most surprised by that the media continued to push maybe it wasn't maybe it wasn't so surprising but what are you most sort of what was the most objectionable element of the coverage i mean it's hard to pick one i would say a couple <laughs> things one is um, which is what got me interested in this trial actually was i had no idea it was even coming up i i had heard about when this happened the incident and i so i i knew loosely about the facts but as the trial's approaching, I said, oh, yeah, I remember that. And they're talking about it. And instantly, when I say they, I just mean, you know, CNN, MSNBC, what I'm watching on the news. When they're talking about it, the, the whole white supremacy and the race thing comes up. And that's always, always a trigger for me that says something is not right. I'm being deceived in some way here. I know I know that that's always, that's always the case when it comes with these stories. Um, so I, I know I'm not getting the full set of facts. So I then had to go back and I looked back and saw, okay, look, here's all the video. I, and one of my favorite things to do is always look at the, the original complaint against the, um, the defendant. In one of these cases, I did the same thing with Derek Chauvin during the, um, the George Floyd saga. Um, you read the, the whole complaint to get the initial set of facts. You watch as much video you can, you say, and you say, okay, all the raw materials do not line up with what the media is saying here. So that I would say first and foremost, if you wanted the truth about this trial, you had to get the raw material. You had to watch the live feed of the trial. Mm. You had to read the state's original complaint. You had to watch the raw video because everything they were showing you on CNN and MSNBC was just not true. The narrative that was being built day in and day out was not true. Otherwise, I would say um, kind of as a, a, a distant second, I would say was just the um the upset and the nitpicking over what what happened with the judge <laughs> anything yes, the judge yes. said became a controversy you even had the the um the defense uh, attorney saying i've never this was his i believe his direct quote he said i've never seen so much made over so little and he was yep. referring to criticism of the judge one of one of the criticism that i read in usa today was that um, his ringtone went off during the trial and that was, what was the song? America. God bless Beatles. America, yeah. God bless America, yeah. That song went off and wrote, that's Trump's unofficial campaign song, so that means something. And of course, you get to tie that to white supremacy. So yeah, all of those, uh, all of the above, but first and foremost, just the narrative that this had anything to do with race, uh, by far the worst, most egregious media, I would say mistake, but we know it's not a mistake, it's done on purpose. And Ben, I want to add to that question, tossing to you, I think there's seeing like Barry Weiss and Glenn Greenwald sort of collect these reactions from people on the left who had no idea, for instance, that Rittenhouse's victims um, were not black and didn't know actually a lot of facts that they learned because the networks covered this entire compelling trial live for days. Um, is there... Uh, is there a possibility that this is sort of a, a dam breaking moment uh, that sort of builds on top of Russia collusion, that builds on top of Covington, where people on the left say, wow, I watched a lot of this trial live and I had like literal facts incorrect. Well, first, I have to indict you both as being fake news because I believe <laughs> the ringtone was actually proud to be an American, oh. uh, which is Lee Greenwood. Uh, and uh, and it's not, uh, uh, and, uh, and it, it, I mean, 
again, it's like that's like such a classic old man ringtone. Yeah, you know, like, like, oh. Midwestern boomer. It's the, yeah. Exactly. It's like it's the most. Unav- it's like of course that's what his ringtone is. What, do you what think else would it be? be? You know, smoke I mean, on the water. On. You know, he is, is the judge supposed to have Megan the Stallion? You know, or something like that. But the, the thing, that would have been funny. Uh, but but uh, but uh, of course, that now I'm outside, so this car alarm. No, so the thing that I I agree completely with Eddie that the thing that stuck out to me as being the underlying element of this trial that the media pushed, made a thing, and was obviously wrong from the get go. Uh, that uh, that was so objectionable was any element of race in the sense that, you know, both Kyle Rittenhouse and everyone who was shot that night was white. Okay. They were all white Midwesterners, you know, and they were people who, uh, you know, you couldn't make some argument about, I mean, Nicole Hannon Jones has, you know, tweeted out this thing about, you know, this being yet another heritage of, of 1619. America's and, sweetheart. Yes, America's sweetheart, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Uh, I'm sure uh, destined to be Time's Person of the Year. Um, and uh, and it's one of these things where, like, that is so on its face false, but also stupid. That's just a very stupid thing to say. It had nothing to do with what was going on there. Now, the, the actual story from my perspective is it's sad that Kyle Rittenhouse even felt the need to show up, whether you think he should have been there or not. The fact that he felt the need is itself an indictment of adult members of the community and, of course, of the leadership that didn't send in National Guard, didn't send in, you know, a heavier police presence in order to uh, prevent against the kind of riotous violence that led to livelihoods being destroyed, uh, places being burned down that had nothing to do with anything. Um, And and so it's like on a certain level, it's I, I am. I'm glad for this verdict, but I think the actual lesson should be, you know, how, what is the right way to respond to these riots? And that was what was so telling about the anecdote that Nellie Bowles included in the latest uh, uh, Barry Weiss substack, which was that, you know, she had written while uh, uh, writing for the New York Times, she had written a lengthy piece based on her interviews that she did in Kenosha following up on what happened. She wasn't there, uh, I believe, at the time of it, but she went back and talked to a bunch of people and basically found that the media narrative was false then, back in back in 2020. She was saying, you know, the, the media narrative about what happened here was false. The people who were hurt were not people who were being targeted because of any kind of white supremacy. It was, you know, a uh, middle-class to poor multi-ethnic uh, part of the community Kylie can probably speak to that. And it's one of these things where, uh, you know, that's obviously a story that needed to be told. And and her takeaway was it was just so weird and strange that the New York Times told me they were going to sit on this until after the election. Mm. And to me, that's that's really time and again what we run into when you're battling against this these corporate media behemoths is if the story does not serve the narrative, we're going to sit on it. We're going to wait on it. We're going to diminish it. We're going to save it until some point where we feel like it's safe to tell people the truth about what's going on. And then we're going to feign some kind of naivete about, you know, the elements that all went into that. Uh, and, you know, to me, that was the most egregious aspect of this. They allowed this to turn into something that was a race-based tension conversation as opposed to one that should have been about 
community property and, and how people felt the need to defend themselves when the cops weren't there, uh, which is itself an indictment of a whole different aspect of, of, of how we govern and protect ourselves. But, you know, the, the media is going to play this game again. There will, mm-hmm. They will be drawing this out and they will do their best to spin this result into yet another indication of white supremacy, just as they did the results of the election in Virginia, just as they've done so many other aspects of of the culture war that we've seen play out in, in recent years, uh, when in fact there is simply no evidence to support that cause whatsoever. Uh, it's all about their own creative frame of what's going on uh, and not about the truth. Yeah, I think it's that's a, there's already like sour grapes analysis of the judge, as we talked about a little bit earlier, that feeds into that. Like this is all going to be this is about the, the failure of the American justice system and systemic racist that say systemic racism and white supremacy that is baked into the system. And that was really an inevitable outcome of a not, a not guilty verdict. Now, Kylie. Um, so I'm sort of from about an hour outside Kenosha. Kylie uh, lives in Wisconsin currently um, and, and was on the ground um, and taking video, talking to business owners. I think 35 small businesses were destroyed in these riots. Um, if you add all like total with damage, I think it was something around 80. And even damage is hugely costly, especially amidst a pandemic where people were struggling immensely. Um, and, and that's not to mention all of the, the other emotional damage and, and trauma that was caused by these riots. What did you see uh, that the New York Times didn't want Nellie Bowles to talk about? What, what did you see that we published back then? And who's on your mind now um, as, as we sort of wonder what will happen on the ground in Kenosha tonight. Yeah, um, well, there's one particular business owner that I think about a lot. Um, it He was the owner of Rody's Camera Shop, and we spoke to him at length. We did an interview with him, um, Avita Duffy and I, when we visited Kenosha. Um, he didn't rebuild because he was close to retirement and didn't think that it was worth it to rebuild. And, you know, if we see riots in Kenosha tonight, it's probably a good thing he didn't rebuild because I think um, I, I hope and pray that there aren't riots there tonight, but if there are, uh, you're probably going to see a lot of people who are just now starting to get back on their feet and could potentially have the rug pulled completely out from under them again. Um, but in the aftermath of the riot, I mean, the city looked like something like a war-torn country, sort of. There were burned buildings, um, boarded up windows with messages, you know, messages written on them in uh, spray paint that said, um, please kids above um, the elderly live here, you know, just desperate pleas for the unrelenting mob to pass by them. Um, And, you know, these boarded up, boarded up uh, windows are pointing at, at um, storefronts that are completely burned out and windows that are smashed. And um, the, the camera shop that I had mentioned was a complete pile of ashes. There was just absolutely nothing left. And uh, when we talked to that particular business owner, he told us about, when he he learned about it in the middle of the night and just seeing the business up in flames and just not being able to do anything about it. Um, of course, you saw this week during the trial, plenty of videos of uh, car source being just completely mm. engulfed in flames. And that business was another one where there was just nothing left. I mean, everything that remained was an absolute burn to a crisp shell of what it once was. And Uh, You know, like I said, it's hard to know what's going to happen in Kenosha tonight. I think the governor has called in the National Guard in preparation, which he should have done earlier last time. Um, But perhaps that will help keep things at bay tonight. And so we don't have to see teenagers trying to defend businesses in the absence of police officers. But 
um, just thinking back to the business owners that we spoke to, their lives were utterly devastated. I think it was $2 billion in damage. I want to say I might be wrong about that. That might be a different figure, but um, their lives were just completely upended. And I think that's a good example of, of how media bias isn't necessarily um, it's it's the the old if it bleeds, it leads maxim doesn't really apply anymore because there was a lot of bloodletting from these business owners. Um, and there were a lot of incredible stories as the Nellie Bowles story, which was ultimately published after the election, literally a couple of days after the election, if not the day after the election. You can read it. It's very compelling. It's, it's hard to imagine the New, York, the New York Times not wanting to publish it for any reason like that. Eddie, have we moved into a new era of of media bias where what we're essentially seeing is unwitting propaganda? where uh, your your Chuck Todd's and Katie Turr's are not getting talking points from uh, the DOJ or from the Biden administration. They just sort of uh, agree with them anyway. And so every, their, their coverage is uh, propaganda inevitably. Um, I would say like kind of tagging on to what Ben said about how this kind this this it seems like the Russia, the Russiagate stuff, which is um, if, if there is going to be any kind of acknowledgement that we got anything wrong, it's just so far after the fact and so, so like such a footnote. Um, and a, the, I, I couldn't even believe they did it. The wording on this was so remarkable, shocking even. Um, the Washington Post, when they retracted a bunch of their, uh, a bunch of, I think it was two articles or something this week that were a year old about Russiagate. And they said, we can no longer stand by pieces of this story. We can no longer stand, well, we can no longer, meaning after the 2020 election's over. Now that that's <laughs> over, yeah, we can no longer do it. What fine timing. Um, I think, the, but I think that this has been the case for a very long time is that, uh, and, and you actually see stories about this from media reporters at the New York Times and the Washington Post, I've read a few, where reporters are now more interested in taking a stand on like a more, like it's a moral cause. It's a moral crusade. Um, and what's the right issue that we come down? And that's how we push and chase stories anymore. What's the, um, and, and I, I wrote about this in, in my book, Privileged Victims, was we have to decide who is the oppressed and who is the privileged. And that's how we're going to, that's the way we're going to frame every single narrative, every major story. Um, and, and, and we have to take a side and we have to push it from that side. So I think we've been there for a while. I don't think that this is particularly new. I just think it's one of the major examples of, of what has been the, 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 the shift in journalism, probably going back to definitely on, on steroids in the Trump era, but probably even predates that by a few years. Yeah, I think it does. I, I want to uh, ask you two Wisconsin girls to weigh in on one particular aspect of this that seemed to take over blue check conversations, but <laughs> struck me as being partic particularly ludicrous, which is this whole he crossed state lines thing. Um, now, I live, as it happens, very near uh, the border into D.C. and the border into Maryland. Um, in fact, it's basically equidistant in terms of me going to Capitol Hill to do an interview as as it is for uh as it was for Kyle Rittenhouse to drive to Kenosha you know yeah. it takes the exact same amount of time and so yeah. the the idea that this was some crazy thing for him to do especially when his dad lived there struck me as just such a such a fraudulent little aspect of everything that that people were glomming onto uh were you offended at the ignorance of the geography of the midwest 
Uh, well, it's so ironic because it's not the geography of the Midwest. Like, like you said, the irony of it is that the people commenting on it most were people probably living, you know, living in New Jersey, commuting to Manhattan, or people who, uh, you know, live in Arlington and commuting to Capitol Hill. It's people inside the Beltway who who cross state lines every single day to go about their business who had the most things to say about this. I thought it was really interesting because I'm from southeastern Wisconsin and there's a, a joke uh, and anybody listening will who's from Wisconsin or Illinois, northern Illinois knows this about uh, the, the northern Illinois people who cross state lines into Wisconsin with their jet skis and with their uh, pontoon boats um, and just like in snowmobiles and just like wreck our bars and you know cheer for the bears um, or the, the Blackhawks. What is it? Like, that's not what's going on here. Um, and so there there is not a lot of love lost uh, in that situation. Situation. I, I kind of wonder if that was the germ of this narrative and the, the it, sort of it's the mindless... way that it's the way that I feel about Maryland drivers. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> you know? yes. But, but I think I wonder if that was the germ of this, and then the media realizing that this made it sound much more of a severe crime and much more of a dramatic offense latched onto it, uh, and then, then it was just sort of off and part of this narrative. Like it became such an important part of this narrative, or they just assume the entire Midwest is like Nebraska, and to get to from Nebraska. Nebraska, like Dakota, um, it's all like it's a very serious effort. Um, and the, uh, yeah, go ahead, Kylie. The, the distance that Kyle Rittenhouse had to travel from Antioch, Illinois, to Kenosha, Wisconsin, is about the same distance, if not shorter, that um, my family living in the sticks of Wisconsin had to drive to go to a Walmart. Anyway, in any <laughs> yeah, direction. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah, uh, and that doesn't really exist. I well, the other thing that was so striking to me about this is just this attitude toward the Midwest that seemed to underlie a lot of the coverage that, you know, again, is it depicts uh, everyone in the Midwest as being some kind of uh, crazed gun-toting red stater type, um, you know, and... And it's not. I mean, there's a reason that they were that they're swing states. There's a reason that they have gone back and forth. But it, it brings me back. I was thinking today about um, uh, about Barack Obama's content uh, comment back uh, in the in the context of the 2008 election, um, decrying the uh, people who are still cl clinging to their guns and their religion. And the thing that everyone forgets about that moment is that he didn't say it in the general election. He said it during the primary. He said it in particular in a way that was damaging during the Pennsylvania primary, uh, which is you know him referring basically to Hillary Clinton's mounting this comeback against me because she's going to get these votes from these you know Catholics who go hunting in uh, in Pennsylvania who who aren't ready to vote for me, and implying of course racism as the undertone there. The mayor and, of Easttown cast. Yes, exactly. And and to me, that you know, that is just such an underlying element of what's gone on here and the way that the media has covered this from the get-go. It's just can't these people just hurry up and go away? Can't they just be grateful that their you know shops are being burned down in a way that they can, you know, act as, as a sacrifice on the funeral pyre, pyre of white supremacism? It's it's just it's utterly insulting. It's it's totally anti-American in terms of the way that we view these people. Um, it's it's totally unfair, 
And I think that smart Democrats are wise enough to know that it is a dangerous direction to go politically in this moment. Um, and uh, and that's something that I think, you know, a lot of Democrats uh, weren't prepared to admit uh, in in recent years. They wanted to move on, really, from the uh, from the old coalition. You remember AOC talking about whether you know Joe Biden should even be in the same party as her, you know. And now they've you know pushed through something that is a weird uh, failed uh, amalgamation of like cramming together AOC priorities and and uh old guard corporatist democrat priorities uh so that you're cutting taxes for millionaires uh for their for their uh for their local homes in different blue states um and also delivering like really crappy versions of the kind of national programs that the uh progressives would like to see uh it's it's such a it's such a weird combination um and it is entirely based on from my perspective, at least, uh, this wish, this unfulfilled wish of demographic destiny that has been ruined uh, in, for them in the past uh, several years by the fact that they haven't been able to build a coalition around racial victimhood that would unite against white Americans across the country. Yeah, yeah I'll just, quick, can I just comment on yeah. something you said about like just the, the, the disdain aspect of what you're talking about, that it's obviously it's the media, but Democrats, but the media in this case, with this case, the the condescension and the patronizing, something that I couldn't, that, that the um, prosecutor kept, he said it at the beginning of the trial and he said it at the very end. He And he asked the jury this, can we all agree that life, a person's life is more important than their property? And what he was getting at was just that the, dis the destruction and the rioting and the burning down of things, that would not, that doesn't necessarily justify someone killing someone else. And I, I guess we could agree on that. But at the same time, there is this idea that like people who do something independent is to be looked down on. And that would be true of the case of Kyle, who did something independent. He went out and decided he, this is something that needs to be done. I, there were many people who, who believed that. But two, this idea that your independent business and everything you worked for and put your life into and your hopes and dreams were built into that business is expendable and that's okay. And you know what, that that went down in flames is totally fine or we're not gonna acknowledge it at all if we do. Like, I mean, just that whole idea is just so, so far removed, I think, than from, they don't, and they don't even realize it. They don't realize it. And I find it very sad and depressing that that, is, that was part of the coverage that, you know, and many of these people, I read it at least it was at it was at the time at least forty businesses closed and were closed for good in Kenosha because they didn't have insurance and they couldn't rebuild. I mean, that that is their life, you know. And you and you know, I just want to say to like people at the New York Times or MSNBC, let's just torture. I mean, obviously not literally, but see your business torch, your livelihood torch. We're gonna torch you your Substack. <laughs> the way you make your business your, your livelihood go up in flames and then we'll talk about how upset you were and why no one deserved to pay for it yeah imagine that but camera shop it. is your twitter account right <laughs> i mean that's that attitude is not unique in any way to the rittenhouse situation though i mean we've watched the elites have that exact same disdain for these same businesses for the last year and a half two years with the coronavirus and lockdowns i mean that attitude about your property your livelihood uh, being expendable is absolutely pervasive, pervasive right now in the media and throughout much of the Democratic Party.
Are your thoughts running in endless circles in your mind? I know I've been there. With the stresses of the last couple of years, it's more important than ever to practice living healthier and happier lives. We talk about that on this show all the time. So what if a few minutes was all it took to change your relationship with stress and anxiety, transforming your life for the better? Well, that's the power of meditation with Headspace. Our thoughts can be confusing enough. Meditation doesn't have to be. Headspace is your convenient dose of meditation, mindfulness, and sleep exercises to relieve stress and anxiety and help you get a good night's sleep all in one app, making it super easy to catch your breath and to make time for your mental health. And it's one of the most science-backed meditation apps in the world, proving meditation works. A study proves in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. All right, so Headspace, if you're struggling with stress, if you're struggling with anxiety, you got to give it a try. Let's actually give it a try right now. So just getting comfortable, you can do this sitting down or lying down. And beginning with a couple of big, deep breaths, breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. As you breathe out, just letting go of any tension in the body and in the mind. And with the next out breath, just gently closing the eyes allowing the breath to return to its natural rhythm. As you just feel the weight of gravity, the weight of the body pressing down. Any tension dissolving. As the body gets increasingly heavy, And just imagining the different parts of the body just switching off, shutting down, allowing the body to unwind, starting with the toes and the feet, the lower half of the legs and the upper half of the legs. the stomach and the lower back, any tension just melting away, the chest, the upper back, the shoulders, the muscles just softening, giving way, the arms, the hands and the fingers, All the muscles just switching off for a moment. The neck and the throat to the head, even the jaw. The muscles behind the nose, the eyes. The entire body just pausing taking a break. Unwinding as you allow thoughts to come and go. You can either gently open the eyes again 
or just keep them closed. Meditation is surprisingly helpful. I've recently found Headspace and I'm excited to learn how to use it to meditate because it can really be a powerful, powerful tool, more than you even realize if you've never done it. So find some Headspace at headspace.com slash federalist and get one month free of their entire meditation library. This is the best Headspace offer available. So go to headspace.com slash federalist today. Headspace.com slash federalist. So one thing I was going to add to this is as the verdict in the immediate aftermath of the verdict being read, MSNBC and Chuck Todd was on, started talking about how there's now this, Joyce Vance was saying, we are not a safer country basically after this verdict because it's going to enable people who want to enact vigilante justice. It is going to be permissive of people who, like Kyle Rittenhouse, have guns and see them as a way to protect their community and to protect themselves. And I'm going to put up um, a screenshot from a New York Magazine article that I thought was really, really interesting. It was this very condescending piece that was trying to analyze uh, the, the sort of conservative mind through the prism of the Rittenhouse trial. And it, it landed on something really interesting. Here it is. It said, uh, this, this culture, quote, sees America as a society forever teetering on the brink of Hobbesian breakdown. I want to toss that to you guys because I think it's the same, born of the same sense of disdain for red state Americans that believe in the Second Amendment who are actually correct in this situation because Kenosha proves we do constantly live in a fallen world that is, in this, that is always on the potential brink of a Hobbesian breakdown. That's human nature. That's how life works. Even though we live in a modern society, we're not protected from human nature and all of its consequences. And this sort of smug, modern liberal, uh, like looking at Kenosha as something that proves the contrary um, and sort of looking down their nose at the people who cling to their guns, their gods and their religion uh, that actually ironically Hillary Clinton, you know, after 2016 bragged about winning the places with the highest GDP uh, is a sort of flipping of parties there. What do you guys make of, of the left's assumption that the, the, there's this bloodlust on the right and on the MAGA right and people are just sort of roaming the streets with, with guns um, in our, our racist system. I, first off, uh, we live in a society, says Emily. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, uh, and it's uh, a Hobbesian one. <laughs> no, but the thing, well, what I, what I think it really speaks to is Americans at this moment have experienced essentially two decades of a breakdown of faith in, their, in the institutions that are designed to uh, protect and ensure uh, their freedom under the law. And that is a breakdown that has been bipartisan. It's not just one side. Um, you know, it includes, I, I would say, the failures of the Bush administration less overseas and more when it came to things like Katrina. Um, the failure of the Obama administration and its Obamacare rollout. Foreign policy failure is on both sides, obviously. Um, but you also have the failures of prevent, you know, failing to prevent 9-11, failing to prevent, uh, you know, a number of different uh, terrible things that Americans have lived through uh, in the last uh, two decades, the financial crisis and, and upheaval uh, in, in ways that really disturbed them. And this past summer, 
it felt like it came to new heights with people just feeling like, you know, the cops weren't there to protect their property, that they were told to stand down or to go away, uh, or that they didn't feel the support of politicians in certain cities in ways that would allow them to do their jobs to protect and serve. And I think you had a, a replay of a lot of the things that we saw during the, the Rodney King riots, you know, but spread out across the country, not just in major cities, uh, but in small ones too. And what you come, what, what I think you come away with, if you've experienced that, if you've lived through it, is a feeling that no one else is there for you to solve your problems or to defend you. You can't necessarily count on them. So you have to prepare yourself. And if you're someone who is, you know, a young man who's especially minded on, you know, joining the, the police force when he gets older or, you know, becoming someone who's going to help protect his, his community, then that naturally leads you to want to know, you know, what does it take to be a medic? What does it take to be able to use a firearm to protect my community? Those are rational choices. Those are things that traditionally in America we have applauded. You know, you know, as much as you can have this revisionist history about Koreatown, you know, the fact is that those people who protected their livelihoods and their business were heroes and that we should view them as such. And so the thing the thing that I think we we have to appreciate is for a normal American, when the institutions seem like they're failing you or even worse, that they're turning against you, then there's a natural tendency to not just become, you know, a Kyle Rittenhouse but to become an Ashley Babbitt, you know, the, mm. the kind of people who feel like everything is breaking down around me. I can't trust the government. I can't trust the media. I can't trust the military. I can't trust the local cops and, and, and government officials, you know, and now in this most recent election experience, I can't trust teachers in the school boards, you know, then it's going to have political consequences and, and societal consequences. And so when people act surprised by them, I feel like, you know, have you been paying attention? Have you have you been watching what's happening? Because if you're a normal people, if you're a normal person in America today, right now, tonight, do you think any of them are talking about Build Back Better? Or are they having a conversation around the dinner table about what everybody thinks about what just happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and what they can take away from that verdict? Because that's going to be the thing that actually informs their opinions going forward about our politics uh, in ways that, that government policy... Uh, you know, on the federal level in particular, we'll never be able to achieve. Eddie, what do you think about that? Um, I think that that's right. And I, 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 that's why I was so riveted by not just this trial, but obviously the, um, the George Floyd saga and the Derek Chauvin trial was just the, the wide reaching cultural aspects of it, the political ramifications of it. The, the, the judge at the beginning of um, the Rittenhouse trial told the jury, he said, this is not a political trial. And I think the piece I wrote was, a, you know, this is definitely a political trial. The <laughs> defense, the defense uh, in closing arguments was sure to say to the jury, this actually is a political trial. And the reason why this case was even brought, you can see on your, you can see the evidence in front of you that it, do, it doesn't comport at all with what um, the state's the case that they're making. They did this because they felt like they had to. There was political pressure on them. And yes, that is the truth. Um, I'm interested to see about what this means going forward. I mean, we see in, in America, just the pendulum often just swings back and forth. Um, but in this case, it swung our way, which is the right way. Um, 
to where we're saying, you know, enough with this mob stuff, enough with this, uh, everything needs to be about race. Um, if you're white, you're automatically bad. We have to convict you just based on calling you racist, whether the evidence lines up with that or not. Um, and again, this is, this is why I was so invested in it. Um, the, the left was very, which includes the national media was so invested in it because they needed to say that one type of political violence is okay. It's excusable. It's justified. The rioting is fine. All of that is perfectly fine. So long as it, as, as it's within our, it aligns with our causes, our political beliefs. Um, that was, that is the case. And as Ben was saying, that's, that's what's animating so much of the country now. Kylie, what do you think? Well, I was going to start by saying um, on the MSNBC Chuck Todd point that I probably agree with him that we are less safe after this verdict, but it has less to do with the not guilty verdict and more to do with his network's propensity to follow jurors and possibly dox <laughs> them. Um, but um, I agree with Ben and Eddie. Um, I think this case has a is not... Um, not a question of vigilantism, yay or nay. That's not what we learned from this case. It's about what happens, what is the natural result of institutions failing us. And I think um, to Ben's point, the same sort of um, impulse that led Kyle Rittenhouse to take up arms to defend property and to defend other people um, is probably because the, the police force was not doing its job and, and other factors. Um, I think that's similar to some of the impulses that led uh, a lot of a lot of people to kind of open their eyes during COVID and move out of cities and move to places where they could take a little more action to live their lives freely and defend themselves because people are are starting to realize that the government doesn't have my best interest in mind. The police don't necessarily always have my best interest in mind. Um, and, and the people calling those shots certainly don't. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and let's close on one broader question um, and, and, you know, close, fold any of your final thoughts into this question. Um, I'll go around the horn. Is there a sort of net, other than the, the obvious victory here of, of justice being served um, and our justice system doing its job and the media narrative being defeated, is there, a, is there any chance that this moves the ball forward? And by forward, I kind of mean backward, backward toward a sense of normalcy um, and, and backward to a sense of where we can find trust again. Or does this actually have a net impact of exacerbating all of the tensions. Does that depend on whether we see riots tonight? Um, what do you guys think? Is, is, this a, is this a moment where the ball was moved forward for the country um, and a sort of net effect? Or do you think this is another one of those things that is going to uh, keep us divided? And one thing I'll add to that is, is I, I actually think a lot of really normal people broadly in the country probably thought this was the right outcome. Um, and the media class is out of touch with people in the public, whether they're independent or left of center. Um, I don't think a lot of people were viewing this through the same racial prism that the media was, though I think the media does have a good chunk of the public in its sort of uh, thrall at this point that there's a healthy chunk of the country that saw it that way, but probably not most. So what do you guys think? Um, Eddie kind of previewed this question. You know, wh where do we go from here? Um, I think that one, anyone who did, who has been paying attention to the trial through the media probably now is looking at that verdict and very confused because they're thinking, wait, no, he was obviously guilty because that's what I've been led to believe. So I don't, I don't know that I agree with you on, on that point. Um, the one thing I will say is that due process now is a battle that is going, no, this did not settle that question at all. Due process is something that we are going to be fighting for for some time now. We, we see it um, in basically every aspect of, of politics now, and, um, 
I think an, another example would be the Me Too stuff. Um, if you're accused, that's just supposed to be in and of itself um, evident that you're guilty of something. Um, this, the same the same goes here, that if the consens consensus within the, in the media is that you've been accused of something, as Kyle Rittenhouse was accused of, you are guilty and that's that. Um, so even though the, tr the trial ended up in a way that anyone who watched the raw, the raw footage and paid attention followed really closely al along with, they know that this was the right call. Otherwise, the media is still going to insist that this had something to do with race. This was it was the judge. It was any number of factors that, that did not lead to what should have been. Um, but no, I think that this this is just going to go back to the question of which should I, which I think is fairly new. The idea that due process is now a constant battle we're going to have from here. And I don't know until when that ends. Yeah. It, Kylie, I'll, I'll go to you and then we'll end with Ben. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. It's a hard question to, to know whether it's moving the ball forward or back. I kind of tend to think of it less in the, have we made progress here or have we gone backwards? And I, I tend to see it more as just um, another step toward our polarization where, you know, the people who felt relief at that verdict and who felt kind of a win for due process and for just uh, the American justice system as a whole are going to be reinforced in that belief and uh, continue that. And the media is just going to use this as another way to fan the flame of white supremacy, uh, systemic racism, and the idea that, um, you know, this was a political trial, it was inherently flawed, the judge was Trumpist, or, you know, whatever they want to say about it. I, I think in ways that we took steps forward, we also took steps back. So I think it just served to polarize more than um, move us in one direction, direction, or another definitively. Ben. So I think that one point that we should keep in mind going uh, forward from this is that the Rittenhouse situation will probably be used as a lens through which we look at whatever next incident happens in any way along these lines. Uh, you know, people will will use it to frame things that happen going forward. And that's something that we've seen, you know, come out of. Uh, a lot of previous experiences, you know, such as Ferguson, where it, they'll they'll just engage in their revisionism automatically without any kind of question about it. Like, oh, well, you know, we all know that that, uh, you know, a, a jury uh, in Wisconsin, you know, got off of a white supremacist, you know, who who went in and crossed state lines legally and did all this other stuff, you know, thanks to his his, you know, uh, uh, Trump theme song playing judge, <laughs> you know, like it's like that's going to be something that someone says on MSNBC or CNN without any kind of pushback where it's just like lie, 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 lie. And then, you know, that's the lens that we use for whatever comes next. Um, and, and so you have to be prepared for that, I think, number one, uh, in the same way that we should be prepared for the same kind of treatment uh, that happened toward Donald Trump to be used uh, during whoever is the next nominee in 2024 for the Republican Party uh, regarding uh, the use of uh, powerful government entities against them or the framing of them as being a stooge of a foreign power or something like that. Uh, because these are the same tools that they've used before and that they will use again. So for for all those reasons, I think that the the way that we should look at this moment is this is a positive step, but as we move forward, we should expect for the left to, rather than learn a lesson from this, uh, to return to its priors in the same way that, that we see them in so many other respects, they will default to that position 
because as John McWhorter was telling Emily in their uh, interview the other day, uh, this is not an ideology. It is a religion. And it's not something that a religion is not something that you can question or break away from in any real respect. It has its doctrines. You're told you are meant to hold to them in every respect and questioning them runs afoul of the entire hierarchy of the left. So I think that unfortunately uh, we are not going to see some kind of, of mass learning experience going back to one of your earlier questions, Emily, uh, from a lot of people. What I do think is that we're going to see a continued slant among independent minded people politically um, and from people who perhaps once considered themselves liberals uh, toward distrust of the very media outlets that they once bought hook, line and sinker because they understand at this point there just have been so many stories that they got wrong and they feel embarrassed about it and they don't like that feeling. So we'll, I mean, we'll see where we go, but unfortunately, I think that we have to, you know, gird your loins. This is not, <laughs> this is not going to be, this is not going to be a situation where the left uh, has some kind of, of mass uh, questioning of uh, the, the lies that they have embraced. Yeah, I think that's right, because to do so would be an incredible concession of incompetence um, and, and nothing short of that. I mean, that's what it would have to be um, unless they are also admitting their religion is wrong. To Ben's point, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by this question of whether the independent minded people who are recognizing like people like to say, oh, media distrust is a bad thing. Yeah, it's a bad thing. But right now it's great because that's the reasonable reaction. You should absolutely distrust our legacy media. Um, and so I'm, I'm fixated on this question of whether the, the independent-minded people's growth is outpaced by the people who are sort of going further into their trench of wokeness um, and getting more and more disinformation from the legacy media. And I don't have a good answer to that. And I think this this trial poses a really interesting question. It seemed to have really shaken some people on the left because when you play this kind of thing live, you learn a lot uh, that you didn't get um, when you were reading stuff that was filtered. Um, so I, I do think this trial poses a, that question interestingly. And I think that's kind of the question of our time going forward. So thank you, Ben Dominich, Kylie Zempel, and Eddie Scary for joining us on this uh, special live reaction to the Rittenhouse verdict on Federalist Radio Hour. All right. All of them kept themselves on mute in case you're listening to the audio version of this podcast and did a did a polite wave, uh, which worked perfectly. Well, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. a reason and then it faded away